You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Our passage of the week uh, we're going to look at in just a moment is in Matthew chapter 14. And it's, it's the miracle of Jesus multiplying the loaves and fish to feed the multitudes. And uh, I got to be honest with you, Monday morning, you know, I, I always work on my sermons in advance, uh, usually about four months in advance, I'm working on my sermons. It's just my pattern that I've been doing for years. It kind of helps me to stay ahead and adequately prepare for my sermons. And I had a sermon that I had prepared a few months ago to preach this weekend. It was on my computer. This is the first time this has happened since I've been at Village, where I got up on Monday morning, came to the office, looked at the sermon. I was like, I'm not feeling this at all. Uh, It's a good sermon, nothing wrong with a sermon, but it's not the right sermon for this moment. And so I just put it aside. Maybe the day will come when I will preach that one. But Monday morning, I just started from scratch, and I was like, okay, let let me put some thoughts together. So uh, this is uh, a fresh sermon that I, I, I think is going to be very simple for us. I'm just titling it Loaves and Fish, and I think it'll be very meaningful for us um, and easy to grab hold of. So let's look at our passage, Matthew chapter 14, and we'll begin reading in verse 13. And, and just to give you the context, John the Baptist has been arrested and executed And Jesus has heard the news. So let's pick it up in verse 13. It says, When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew in a boat to a deserted place by himself. When the crowds learned this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When Jesus arrived and saw a large crowd, he had compassion for them and healed those who were sick. That evening, his disciples came and said to him, this is an isolated place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, there's no need to send them away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here except five loaves of bread and two fish. I want to pause there for just a moment. We're going to read in just a moment. We're going to find out that there were over 5,000 men in this crowd. But that, of course, does not include, include women and children. If we were to add in the women and children, you're looking at a crowd at least double that size. So we're dealing with a multitude of people upwards of 10,000. Luke's going to tell us in his version of this story that it takes place near the village of Bethsaida, which was a tiny, tiny village, like all of these Galilean villages, just a few hundred people. They certainly don't have 10,000 people in the village, let alone do they have enough food to make available to accommodate 10,000 people. Even if they did, the disciples certainly don't have enough money to pay for enough food to feed 10,000 people. And even if they did, how are you going to haul all of this food to feed 10,000 people? So all of that to say, when Jesus tells the disciples, you give them something to eat, 
no doubt they would have been completely dumbfounded, totally astonished. And that's exactly where Jesus wants them. Let's pick it up in verse 18. He said, bring them here to me. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, or you might say it like this. He made them to lie down in green pastures. There's all kinds of Old Testament echoes that we really don't have time to dig into, but I just thought I'd throw in that little nugget for you to meditate on when you go home tonight. He took the five loaves of bread and the two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed them, and broke the loaves apart and gave them to his disciples. Then the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate until they were full, and they filled 12 baskets with the leftovers. About 5,000 men plus women and children had eaten. Amen. This is the only miracle performed by Jesus that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this story, and it's the only miracle that is recorded in all four. It is, in my mind, the most famous of all of Jesus's performed miracles. I would think that many people who have never even opened a Bible before have heard something of this story, the feeding of the multitudes. So it's very, very familiar to us, and I think the challenge of this story is its familiarity to us. It's that we've worked with it for so long. It's been swimming in our minds. Many of us, if you've been raised in church, especially for me, I can remember being a kid uh, in, in Sunday school classes looking at flannel graph versions of this miracle. So this has been in my mind for many, many, many decades. I've, it's filled my imagination. It's formed my imagination. And for many of you, maybe that's the same. But I think because we're so familiar with it, it's hard for us it's a challenge for us to hear it freshly and to enter into the story and experience it as the disciples were experiencing it. And that's really the goal of engaging with the Scriptures, not to study it and dissect it under a microscope, but to fall into the story and let it happen to you so that you experience it firsthand. So I want you to do the, your best to hear this story as if it's the first time. These disciples, these 12, they have seen numerous miracles at this point in Jesus' ministry. They have seen Jesus open blind eyes. They have witnessed Jesus open deaf ears. They have seen Jesus cause the lame to walk. So they know this is a miracle worker, and they've seen some pretty cool stuff. But it would never occur to them what Jesus is about to do and actually create matter and multiply food to feed thousands of people. They have no imagination for what Jesus is about to do. So when Jesus tells them, uh, you give them something to eat, they just immediately default to their normal, pragmatic, common sense way of approaching life. And I think one of the, one of the things that this... Uh, story challenges us with, especially as 21st century modern Americans. How often do we not give God a chance to show up because we default to our normal, practical, common sense way of dealing with problems? 
How, how much do we limit what God does? Because we don't even allow for the possibility to be on the table that God may or could or will do something that confounds our imagination. Let's say you're sick and you pop an ibuprofen or you schedule an appointment at the doctor, all of which is good. I think medicine and doctors thank God for the gift that they are to the human race. So you ought to do that. It's a common sense thing to do, but the trouble is we often default to that without also spending a moment to ask God to heal us, giving God a chance to do something that even the doctors cannot do, and that is to to heal us in a creative, mind-blowing, God-glorifying way. Or maybe you're having some trouble with your finances, and so we, we get our spreadsheet, we get our calculator, we uh, put together a budget, or maybe you even go see your, your friend who's an accountant, all of which is good, all of which is wise, all of which is common sense. But the trouble is, is that sometimes it doesn't even occur to us to put our finances before God and say, God, you are a miracle-working God. Can you show up here and do things that I and my accountant are not capable of doing? And maybe lead me and guide me in ways that I'm not anticipating. Or maybe you're struggling with family conflicts, family issues, and so you do, do all that you know in your power to do. Maybe you schedule an appointment with a good family therapist and thank God for good family therapists. But the trouble is it may not even incur, occur to us to invite God into the problem. And we just simply uh, stick to our own limited resources rather than looking to God's unlimited resources, giving God a chance to do something only God can do, and that is to change human hearts, which is the most important thing that can happen in a family conflict. Or maybe you need a job. You're having unemployment issues, and so you're looking online. You're looking for positions. You're looking on, uh, in the newspaper, and all of which is good and wise, and you ought to do those things, but sometimes it doesn't occur to us to put our employment issues before God. And say, God, can you open doors and lead and direct me into the job that you know would be right for me? Or even in ministry opportunities, maybe you kind of, maybe you kind of feel a tug. You feel called to a particular kind of ministry. But then you look at yourself and you, and you see, I only got five loaves and two fish. I can't do much. And so you don't do anything. And we... It doesn't even occur to us to go beyond the question of what we can do and ask the question, what can God do? I got I to gotta tell you, man, sometimes as a preacher, I want to always say things that are just deeply profound that people haven't thought of. But sometimes we got to be reminded of things. And I just want to remind you of something. It's not just a cliche for us to acknowledge we still serve a miracle working God. But we can't benefit from that as long as we're locked into our pragmatism. We're locked into our natural, common sense, conventional way of approaching life. Do, that, do all that's in your natural wisdom and power to do. But don't become a secularist where you, you pigeonhole God. You compartmentalize God and say, God is part of this church area of my life. But when, when it comes to my family issues, when it comes to my financial issues, when it comes to my health issues, that's when I go see a doctor. That's when I go see a therapist. That's when I go see an accountant. Do all of that stuff. I'm not telling you don't do that stuff, but saturate it with prayer. Saturate it with faith and invite God into that moment. Because God is a God of infinite creativity and infinite resources. And miracles still do happen. 
including miracles of this magnitude. Last week, I, um, I've been taking a class uh, at, Fuller, at Fuller Seminary. I, take, I try to take a couple classes a year. It's about as much as my calendar will allow for. Um, but I'm taking a class right now this summer. And one of the assignments that I had last week, I had to, uh, I had to watch this documentary. It's a really old documentary. It may be the oldest video ever created by humans. <laughs> it was made in like the early 70s. I'm, I'm exaggerating. But, but it's a documentary of, of a really cool thing that happened. And I actually heard about this a few years ago. But this was the first time that I actually watched this documentary. And it involves um, a Catholic priest named Father Rick Thomas who had taken this small parish in El Paso, Texas, right on the border with Mexico. And they were having a Bible study one night at their church with about 20 or 30 people. And they were studying this passage in Luke 14 where Jesus is teaching his followers, whenever you throw a banquet, don't just invite your friends who can repay you by, the, by inviting you to their banquets. He said, instead, invite people who never get invited. Look for the poor. Look for the, the outcasts. Look for those who are uh, marginalized, downtrodden lepers, the infirmed. Look for those people who never get included, who never get thought of, who never get invited, and invite them. So this group of people, they're having this study, and it's filled with prayer and discernment and, and silence, and they're really getting it, trying to get a sense of what the Holy Spirit may be speaking to them out of this passage. And the more they meditated on it, and the more they began to share, there started to become this sharpened uh, level of discernment of what God was calling them to do. And they felt like God was speaking to them as a church that God is calling them to actually put on, literally to put on a banquet. They had a sense that it was supposed to take place on Christmas Day, which, which if I recall, it was like three weeks away. And they were going to do this across the border in Juarez, Mexico. And right there in the heart of Juarez, there was, there's this uh, garbage dump, a huge city garbage dump. And there are people who would actually live in that dump. And they would go to that dump every day and, and just look for things. They would sort through and they would find things that they might be able to trade and barter and sell. And that's how they would actually support themselves. And these people in the church in El Paso believed God was calling them to put a banquet on in the middle of that garbage dump on Christmas Day in Juarez. And they all shared this idea. They all believed, yes, this is God, what God is having us to do. So they started to prepare, and um, they found out that typically there's about 100 people that actually live in that dump who are actually in that dump sorting through on any given day. So they started getting their plans together, and they prepared enough meals to feed a hundred people. Well, three weeks later on Christmas Day, they go to the garbage dump in Juarez to get set up, and they realize there's nearly 400 people at the dump on this very day. And some of them are starting to panic. How in the world? We only had enough to feed a hundred. How, how could we possibly feed all these people? And the only thing they knew to do is to pray. And so they, they prayed, God, would you show up here and somehow empower us to feed all these people? Well, you watch this documentary as I did last week. I can send you a link if you're interested so you can watch it for yourself. But you watch this documentary and 
person after person after person is interviewed, both on the serving side and on the receiving side. And they all had these kinds of stories where they were saying, man, I was like, I was slicing ham. And every time I would slice ham, I would go to put it on a person's plate and I would look down and the ham wasn't shrinking. And, and then we had all these baskets on these tables where people were eating and they kept taking the bread out of the baskets, but none of the baskets were emptying. And it just story after story, I, I don't even have time to get into all of it, but at the end of the banquet, not only had they fed all of the people, but they had enough food left over to feed three orphanages. I was talking, I was sharing this story with Andy Rotuno uh, two days ago. I was up at Gleanings, and he was like, man, we've had some of that kind of stuff happen with Gleanings. He said, just here recently, there was a guy, I think he was said in Venezuela somewhere, there was a guy who called, and he said, Andy, you're not going to believe this, which is how all these stories, that's how they all begin. But he said, um, we had two two little bags of soup mix, which, which by themselves should only be enough to feed about 20, 25 people. He said, we were able to feed 200 people with the soup mix. So I'm just telling you, never barricade God out of any situation in your life. Do all that you know how to do. It's good to use your wisdom and your common sense. You got to do due diligence, but never barricade God and exclude the possibility that God may do something that confounds your own imagination. Whether you would classify it as miraculous or not, God is constantly at work, constantly wanting to work and looking for opportunities that we will give him. So saturate every situation with faith and prayer and give God the space and chance to do what only God can do. Amen? Amen. Second thing I want to show you out of this passage, it's, it has to do with where Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And I could just imagine the disciples saying, man, we got five loaves of bread. Now, when I say loaves of bread, you're not thinking of our style of bread loaves. You ought to be thinking about like a piece of pita bread. If you have pita bread, uh, just kind of a circular shape, that would have been their loaf of bread. We got five of those. We got five pieces of pita bread, and we got two fish. How could we possibly feed all of these 10,000 people? They're like, I can just see it in my mind. We're going to tell all these 10,000 people to sit down. Hey, everybody, sit down. We're going to feed you. And, and, and man, what if we only have enough to give them a tiny little microscopic crumb? Everybody's going to go home hungry. We're going to look like complete fools. And maybe they even thought something like this. I can imagine maybe they thought, hey, we only got five loaves of bread and two fish. That's not going to feed 10,000, but it'll feed two or three of us. And we got it. So it might as well, two or three of us at least eat. And at least those two or three won't go home, home hungry. That's better than everybody going home hungry. Maybe they thought something like that. It's the what can I do mindset. We look at, for example, the pervasive problems of the world. How nearly one billion people on this planet right now are suffering from some level of hunger, malnutrition. I think 10,000 children die every single day from malnutrition. And we look at how overwhelming the problem of world hunger can be. And we can very easily look at ourselves and say, man, what can we possibly do to make any kind of dent in that problem. It's so pervasive. So we might as well just push that out of our mind and focus on feeding ourselves and our family. Or we look at the problem of homelessness and poverty in the world. Did you know that 
half of this nation's homeless live in our state. And I believe it. And you look beyond our nation, you look around the world at the absolute epidemic of poverty around the world. Well over one billion of people are living in extreme poverty today around the globe. We see how overwhelming it can be. And it would be very easy for us to say, man, what can we actually do? What difference can we possibly make? We can't even make a dent in that problem, so we might as well just focus on enjoying our own houses. Or we look at, you know, the AIDS epidemic. There are millions of people who suffer with AIDS. It would be very easy for us to say, what good could my $20 do to donate to this organization to help people around the world? I might as well just take that $20 and go watch another movie. So these problems can be so overwhelming, it's very easy for us to loop back into our practical way of thinking which also happens to be a very convenient way of thinking because now I can enjoy my five loaves and two fish without any kind of pain of conscience. The what can I do mindset, it leads us to assume that the big problems of the world can only be tackled by big organizations. So we think, man, it's government's job. It's government's job to feed the hungry. It's government's job to house the homeless and deal with social problems like poverty and racism and whatever else is out there. It's government's job. It's world leaders' job. Their responsibility is to uh, make the world a more peaceful place. Because look at me. What can I do? I got five loaves and two fish. Government, man, they got a lot of loaves. They got a lot of fish, a lot of money, a lot of power. So it's their responsibility to take care of these things. And then what can happen is people who still really care about these big issues, as we all should, we can begin to think that the only way to address these issues is by spending all of our time trying to tell governments and world leaders how to be responsible for these big issues. Now listen, it's, it's good and it's wise, I think, to use whatever influence you might have to try to influence government to be as humanitarian as possible. I think that's a good thing. But still, man, like first of all, there's, there's not universal agreement on exactly how government should address these types of things. And you know what? They have a limited amount of loaves and fish just like we have a, loaf, a limited amount of loaves and fish. Yeah, government has a lot more loaves and fish than I do, but it's not an infinite amount of loaves and fish, even though they act like that sometimes. But they've got a finite amount of loaves and fish as well. So even governmental leaders have to make tough, tough decisions about who gets what, when do they get it, what should we prioritize, what's the best program to distribute these loaves and fish. So you got some people who say, well, if you really care about the poor, you'll give tax, tax breaks to the rich. It'll create jobs, lift people out of poverty. you got other people who say, no, if you really care about the poor, you'll, you'll tax the rich even more, give it to the poor, and provide stronger social safety nets. And the fight just goes on and on and on and on. And sometimes, I'm going to tell you, as an outsider, it kind of feels like nobody's making any progress. But the question you and I in this room the question we are to be living in is not what is government called to do to address these kinds of issues. What am I uniquely called to do? What are you uniquely called to do? What are we called to do? I think it's great if government can do a little bit of good in the world. But Jesus is looking at us, Village Church, you and me, and he's saying, you got five loaves and two fish. Use what you have and trust me to take what you have and multiply it and do something far more powerful and far more God-glorifying than anything government could ever do. Because the hope of this world 
is not in finding the right form of governance or the right policies or having the right leaders, the right politicians. The hope of this planet is in kingdom people obeying God with our five loaves and two fish, trusting that Jesus can take that and expand the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? I want to hear a big, strong amen Saturday night. Thank you. So what Jesus is saying to us in this passage is, if you've got five loaves and two fish, don't just think about yourself. Ask the question, who can I share this with? However much you have, however little you have, invest in other people, and God will use that to do stuff you and I and our ordinary limited resources could never do. Finally, the third thing I want to say out of this passage, you'll notice at the end it says that the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, why the number 12? Why were there 12 basketfuls? I I think that's not accidental. First of all, the 12 baskets left over correlate with the 12 disciples. And each of them has a basket to share now with someone else. But why were there 12 disciples? Why did Jesus not choose 10 or 11 or 13 or 14 or 15? Why did Jesus choose 12 disciples? Because the 12 disciples correlate with the 12 tribes of Israel, the original 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, what's happening symbolically is God is saying, I am doing a new thing. I am raising up a new movement. I am regathering Israel around my son, Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus is not one of the 12. Just like Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jesus stands outside of the 12 and leads them. And each one of the 12 now has a basket full of leftovers to share with someone else. So here's the point. Just as the 12 apostles are foundational to this new Israel, so also this principle of sharing and multiplication is foundational to this new Israel. It's part of our DNA. It's the essence of what we're about. We are to be a people who, in following Jesus, we share what we have, and we trust that the more we have and the more we share, the more we will have to share. I'm going to give you a story. I'll close with this story, and then we'll be done. And I've shared some of this before. Some of you have heard it, uh, but some of you are new, and you haven't heard this. And even if you have heard it, I'm going to share some details you, you haven't heard yet. But uh, several years ago, in 2015, I was pastoring in Louisiana, in a town called Crowley, a town of about 14,000 people. And we had a well-established church there, and things were going well. And I was searching. I was asking God about our future as a church, where God might be leading us. And I remember I was riding in a car on Interstate 10 towards Baton Rouge. And somewhere on that car ride, I was looking into the trees And I just had this picture in my head. Nothing spooky or whatever. It was just a natural thought. I I didn't think anything of it. But I just had this picture in my head. And I saw our church with a ministry to men with addictions. A, A residential ministry where we would house men for a month and disciple them and train them in job skills and get them out of drugs and get them on the right path to becoming productive citizens kind of like a teen challenge kind of ministry. And so I had that thought in my mind, and I didn't think much of it. I just said, Lord, that would be wonderful one day. Let us know when you want to do it. And I was thinking maybe in 10 or 15 years, you know. 
So I kind of put that aside. And um, about two or three months later, one of our staff members came into my office and he wanted to meet with me. Actually, he set an appointment ahead of time. He said, Ryan, I want to I schedule a time. Let's get together. I have something I want to discuss with you. But he didn't tell me what it was about, which I hate it when people do that. Like, if you want to schedule a meeting with me, tell me what we're going to be talking about. Um, just, just a tip. Um, it'll save me a lot of stress. But anyway, so he meets with me and he shares... He just opened up his heart. He said, Ryan, I, I just have, for the last few months, I've been praying, and I keep having this thing come back in my mind, and I cannot get away from it. In fact, this idea keeps getting stronger and stronger in my heart. And he said, I believe God is calling me to lead a ministry for men with life-controlling addictions, and I just can't get away from it. That, that was his background, and God saved him out of addiction. And now he was a minister, but he felt like, man, I'm called to do this. But, but he said, I don't feel like I'm called to do it anywhere else. I'm not, I'm not called to move somewhere. I feel like I'm called to do it right here in Crowley. What do you think? And I was thinking, man, first of all, that's, that's a risky thing for him to just throw out there. But I said, you're not going to believe this, man. But um, I kind of had the same thought two months ago. And so we kind of discussed and said, well, why don't we just take another couple months? Because this will... This will wait. We want to make sure we don't do anything before we have a real sense that this is what God's called us to do. So I said, let's take a couple more months. Let's pray again on our own and just seek God for some wisdom on what's, what the next step could be. And let's come together and share, compare notes. So that's exactly what we did. Two months later, we come back into a discussion. And it turns out in our own separate prayer times, both of us came to the same conclusion that if we're going to actually pursue this, if we do sense God's called us to do this, we will need to add a third person into the mix to, to help carry some of the administrative work. We both came to that same conclusion, and we both had the same person in mind. Uh, there was a, a fella who had come out of our church years earlier who was now living in Long Island, New York, and we both thought of the same person and it just so happened that he was going to be coming back to Louisiana to visit some family that summer. So we said, let's wait until he comes and let's meet with him in person. So that's what we did. He comes back to Louisiana. We meet with him and pitch the idea. What do you think about moving back to Louisiana and helping us with launch this ministry? And he said, you guys are not going to believe this. But God has put it in my heart to move back to Crowley, Louisiana and get involved in what he's doing here. And so by this point, we're starting to feel like now it's time to just share with the board. Here's what's been going on. We want you to join us in prayer and discernment over this. So we brought the board in on it and asked them to be praying. And uh, it seemed like within the next month or two, we met again and discussed it with the board. And every single board member unanimously, we all felt strongly this was something that God was calling our church to do. So we had a very clear sense of calling here, just like those people in El Paso felt called to put on that banquet. It's not that they just came up with this idea and ran with it. No, they felt like God called them to do this. We felt called to launch this center. And after that clear sense of discernment, I'm so thankful that we had that discernment because we needed it in order to make it through some of the obstacles that were ahead. Because that year, 2015, the economy of South Central Louisiana went like this. It just nosedived. The offshore oil drilling industry, which was our main driver in our economy, plunged. And with it, our whole local economy. And our church was in a financial 
predicament. Our, our Christian school at our church was in a huge financial predicament. Our church lost from one year to the next probably 10% of our budget in tithes and offerings. Our school lost probably 20% of our students, which is a huge deal. And we're like, man, we, how are we going to weather this crisis? And in the middle of all of that, God's putting in our heart to raise up this new ministry. I felt like the disciples on the front end of this. I felt like Jesus was saying, you give them something to eat. And I'm like, God, I don't have any resources. We're trying to get our church straightened out. We're trying to get our finances for our school straightened out. And now we're trying to launch, we're called to launch a ministry for which we don't even have a dime in the bank. And it's like, I have no idea how we're going to do this. I have no idea how we're going to fund it, how we're going to sustain a ministry like this. How are we going to buy a facility to house men? All these questions. And I didn't have any answers at all. But notice in this story that we read, notice when the multiplication happened. It happened as they were obeying and as they were engaging in the call that God had given them, that Jesus had given them. You give them something to eat. They didn't have the answers. They had no clue. They just started handing out bread and fish. And the multiplication happened in the midst of their obedience. It did not happen on the front end. It would have been one thing for Jesus to say, you give them something to eat. Lord Jesus, we, don't, we only have five loaves and two fish. Oh, don't worry, I'll just multiply it right now and hand it out. He didn't do that. He waited until they started obeying. And so, man, we didn't have much, but we started with what we had. We started scheduling meetings with civic clubs in our city. We started pitching it to the church, casting vision. And um, make a long story short, man, finances just poured in out of the woodworks. People started getting on board. Somebody donates $100. Somebody donates $1,000, $5, $5,000, $10,000 here and there. And so we end up purchasing a food truck, and we start selling hamburgers every weekend, start generating income out of that. And at the right time, a man in our city who owned a huge warehouse, huge building right in the heart of our city approaches us and says, guys, I got this building here and I feel like God's, God wants you in this building. And he says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to sell it to you, but I'm not going to put a price tag on it. You decide the price tag. We're not going to go through the bank. It's going to be all legal, but we're going to go through the owner and I'm not going to charge you any interest. I'm not going to require any down payment. And you decide your monthly payment, whatever you decide. You pay me what you think you can pay. And if you ever get to a point where you can't even do that, just let me know and I'll work with you. So we're basically handed this building that we're, fund, that we're able to purchase because of a food truck. And we take the reserves we have and we start remodeling this building. We turn it into a thrift store. You'll see it on the screen. This is the building. We turn it into a thrift store. And I'm thinking, man, are people really going to donate their items to a thrift store maybe like the first few weeks everybody's excited but are people really year after year going to keep bringing their stuff I was like I don't even know and I'm going to tell you man we had more than 12 basketfuls of items we, we, it, the problem was how can we get rid of all this stuff and this thrift store takes off. We start generating all this income. Now we can start purchasing temporary pods, housing for these men to start coming into our program. Now we got men in the program and we're discipling them. They're helping us with the thrift store. It's growing, it's expanding, and things continue to multiply. Within five years, from the, from the very beginning of the process, when it was just an idea, to five years later, the ministry had three thrift stores, over 60 men, 
And a few months before I left to move here to California, we bought a building, a facility north of our town that had the capacity to house 80 men with a commercial kitchen, everything we needed, and we bought it with cash, pennies on the dollar. And since I've been here at Village Church over the last two years, they've added another thrift store, and they've just hired a new director, a woman who's going to lead a new training center for women with addictions. And we're just seeing multiplication upon multiplication. And the multiplication happened as we just stepped out. And we just obeyed and we used what we had. That's how this thing works. You first of all, you ask God, what are you calling me to do? What are you calling us to do? And you wait until you have an answer to that. But once you have a clear call of what God's put it in your heart to do, you take what you have and you step out and you trust God to multiply it, and he shows up and he does, and that's how the kingdom advances. One last passage, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 and 8. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not regretfully or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. So, so the reality is this. We cannot, at Village Church, we're not going to solve the problems of the world. We're not going to solve all the problems of Los Angeles. And we can't. But if you'll take your five loaves and two fish, and I take my five loaves and two fish, it may not seem like a whole lot, but five loaves and two fish plus Jesus is a whole lot. And it'll do things that confound our imagination. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.